Rabbi Tabas, friends, <clears throat> it's a great privilege for me to have this chance of speaking to you. You are um, a terrific group of students and privileged to be at a great school. And I just wish you in all you do. May Hashem bless all you do and may each of you be a source of blessing to the Jewish people. Friends, as we're coming up to Pesach, let me just tell you a simple little story. It happened some years ago when I was traveling. We were in Hong Kong, and at the end of a rather difficult day, I switched on the television and saw a program that I hadn't seen before. I don't know if you have it here in the States called the Discovery Channel. Do you have that? It's, it's an interesting, sorry, forgive me. Listen, I'm, I'm back from the Jurassic era, so I don't know such things. But what fascinated me was that this Discovery Channel was showing a documentary about the temples built by Ramses II. Ramses II is, according to many people, the pharaoh of the Exodus, the pharaoh before whom Moshe Rabbeinu spoke. And the documentary was showing us the extraordinary temples he built in Luxor, in Karnak, in Abu Simbel. And the broadcaster was speaking in hushed tones about their grandeur, their magnificence, how they had survived for more than 300 years, 3,000 years. And I was really impressed until I suddenly had a thought. I suddenly thought, who built those temples? Our ancestors, yours and mine. And I imagined a little thought experiment. Supposing we could uh, travel back in time. Supposing you and I could pay a visit back 33 centuries and actually meet Ramses II. And I imagined the conversation running along the following lines. Oh, mighty emperor, we are here from 3,300 years in the future. And we have good news for you and bad news. And Ramses II is looking at these strangers and wondering you, who are these crazy guys? And he says, go on, tell me the good news. What's the good news? And you say, Ramses, there is a nation that is alive today that will still be alive and well 3,000 years into the future. He says, what is the bad news? And you say, it's not going to be you. And he says, who then? And you say, you see those slaves laboring to build your temples, the Jews, the people you call the Ivrim, the Hebrews. They are going to be alive and well 33 centuries from now. He would have thought you were completely crazy. Ramses II was the mightiest empire, emperor of the greatest empire 
in the ancient world. It was already well over a thousand years old before Moshe Rabbeinu stood before him. Ramses, it's very interesting. I don't know if you thought about this, but Ramses and Moses are almost the same words. And the word Moses or Moses in ancient Egyptian, we know what it means in Hebrew. What does Moshe mean in Hebrew? I pulled him from the water. That is what the name means in Hebrew. But in Egyptian, Masiz is the Egyptian word for child. And what does the R-A, the Ra, stand for? Does anyone know? Yeah? Pardon? The sun god, the Egyptian sun god. So Ramses means child of the god of the sun. That's what Egyptians thought emperors were, children of the gods. And against Ramses, you have Moses, who's just a child. So here you have a great empire and a great emperor, all powerful in the ancient Middle East and North Africa, against a group of slaves. The Israelites were the lowest of the low, as far as the Egyptians were concerned. They had no land, no power, no rights, no freedom. And the Egyptians believed they had no future. It's very interesting. Does anyone know the first reference to Israel outside Tanakh anywhere in the world? Anyone know this? You know? The first reference to Israel outside of Tanakh is on a, is on a, a rock of black basalt which stands today in the museum in Cairo, and it's called the Manepta Stele. And it was engraved 3,300, just under 3,300 years ago by Manepta IV, the emperor of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt immediately after Ramses II. And it says this, Israel is laid waste, her seed is no more. In other words, the first reference to Israel outside the Bible is an obituary. The Egyptians thought the Israelites are already destroyed. Or at least that's what they wrote. And that was when I realized how improbable our survival has been. That was when I realized that somehow the ancient world had written us off and yet we have outlasted the greatest empires the world has ever known. And the question is, how did it happen? There's a rabbi here in um, America called Rabbi Menachem Ganak, who was very friendly with a president called Bill Clinton. Have you seen this little book, Letters to President Clinton? So one of the more unusual things that I was asked to do when I was chief rabbi is write divrei Torah for Bill Clinton when he was president. And I want to tell you the devour that I wrote for him. When I was mulling this question over, what allowed Jews to survive and the greatest empire, Egypt of the Pharaohs, did not survive? 
And I wrote it in the form of a devout terror for President Clinton, which he enjoyed and wrote me back a very sweet letter. I said, imagine this. Imagine you have been given the opportunity to make one of the greatest speeches in history. Your people has been in exile for 210 years. They've been enslaved, they've been afflicted, they've been oppressed. And now, after a series of miracles and plagues, they're about to go free. And just a few days before they go free, you gather them all together and you address them. What will you speak about? Any offers? What would you speak about? You could be Abraham Lincoln and talk about a new birth of freedom. Or you could speak about the destination that lay ahead, the land flying with milk and honey. Or if you were made of sterner stuff, you could speak about the difficulties between here and there, what the late Nelson Mandela called the long walk to freedom. If you had done any of those things, that would be a great speech of a great leader. Moshe Rabbeinu did none of those things. And that's what made him a unique leader. If you look at Parshat Bo in the Torah, chapters 12 and 13 of Sefer Shemot, you will see what Moshe Rabbeinu actually did. He actually three times turned to the same subject again and again and again. When your children ask, them, ask you such and such, this is how you shall answer them. When your child asks you this in the future, say this to him. You shall teach your child in that day. They are thinking about tomorrow. He is thinking about the distant future. They are thinking about freedom. He is thinking about education. Why? Because to defend a country, you need an army. But to defend a civilization, you need education. Education is the conversation between the generations. And that is what made Moshe Rabbeinu a unique leader. The only person ever, and ours is the only people ever, who predicated our very future on education, on learning, and the life of the mind. And so Jews became the people whose citadels were schools, whose heroes were teachers, and whose passion was learning. And that, I suddenly realized, is why Egypt did not survive and the Jewish people did survive. Because already at the dawn of history, the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Israelites asked themselves the deepest question that any civilization can ask, which is how, in this all too short span of years that we call a life, can we become a part of immortality? And the Egyptians said, you do that by building monuments of stone that will outlast the winds and the sands of time. And they were right. The buildings survived, but the civilization did not survive. But Moshe Rabbeinu said no. To survive and to flourish, you do not need monuments of stone. You need to engrave your values on the hearts of your children and they on theirs across the generations. And that is why in Egypt all that survives is monuments of stone. Whereas we, a tiny little people, can still stand and sing 
Am Yisrael Chai. That is why when we sit around the Seder table and tell the story of Pesach, we are reenacting the greatest miracle in all of human history. That miracle of handing on the story and handing on the fight for freedom that our ancestors gave to their children and your parents give to you. And that is what Pesach is about. There is nothing like it in all the world. The oldest continually surviving ritual in all of human history. And we are part of that miracle. And that is why we, we are here and the descendants of Ramses II are not here. What fascinates me about Pesach is that it became not just the Jewish story, it became for the West the human story. I don't know if you know just how much of the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim was responsible for the birth of America. Did you know that? Only in America, what was Egypt? Anyone know? Egypt was... England. Pharaoh was George III. The Red Sea was the Atlantic Ocean. So you fought for freedom from us lot. But that was the American story. That is the story John Winthrop told the people on board the Arabella in 1630. And he quotes Tanakh to them. That is what Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin spoke about in the summer of 1776 when they were drafting the American Declaration of Independence and designing the Great Seal of the United States. Benjamin Franklin had the Egyptians drowning in the Red Sea and Thomas Jefferson had the Israelites being led by a pillar of cloud across the wilderness. And most American presidents, from Jefferson's second inaugural in 1805, all the way through, really, to Barack Obama's in 2009 and 2013, have directly or indirectly referred to Yitzhak Mitzrayim and the covenant that is part of Jewish history. It is very interesting that this still makes a difference in the world. Friends, does anyone, does anyone know about the, the war in Kosovo? Have you read about that at all? Have you come across that? In Kosovo in 1999, NATO fought a battle uh, to, uh, to bring back 300,000 Albanian Muslims who had fled from Kosovo, fled from the Serbs. Each year I used to make a television program for the BBC. And that year, in 1999, they flew me out there. You couldn't get a commercial flight to Kosovo. I flew out with the Air Force. And I came to see the leader of the NATO troops in Pristina, which is the capital of Kosovo. And his name was General Sir Michael Jackson. I mean the other Michael Jackson. And he said to me... He said, Chief Rabbi, we owe your people a great debt. I said, why? He said, when refugees come back from a country, the most important thing 
they need to know in order to realize that life is returning to the normal is the schools are opening on time. I said, yes, explain. He said, well, your people, he said, turning to me, made sure that the schools opened on time. So I discovered that the Jewish community of Pristina was running all the schools in Pristina, the capital of Kosovo. Do you know how many Jews there were in Pristina? According to my discovery, nine. But you understand what happens when you're a member of the Jewish people, you have branches everywhere. You get on your cell phone, you get in touch with the joint, you get in touch with Israel, and one way or another the Jewish people came to the rescue of Kosovo. Why? Because we are the people who know that in order to have freedom, you need schools that open on time. Guys, I don't know if you feel you are celebrating freedom in your school days, <laughs> but you're certainly getting your apprenticeship in liberty here. I love the story, which I tell in one of my books about an American, an African-American called Stephen Carter. Stephen Carter, an African-American, became with his family in the early 1960s the first black family to live in an hitherto completely white neighborhood in Washington. And he writes in his autobiography that when they moved, and he was about 11 years old at the time, when we moved, he said, I sat with my brothers and sisters on the front porch of the school of our house to see how we would be welcomed. He said, we weren't. Nobody looked at us. Nobody said anything to us. Nobody made eye contact with us. And I thought to myself, we shouldn't have moved here. We will never belong here. This is not our place. And then he writes, and all of a sudden... My eye was caught by a lady who was walking on the other side of the road. And she gave us a big smile. And she disappeared into her house and five minutes later came out with a big tray of drinks and cookies and came over to us and said, Welcome, wonderful to have you here. He said, That, day, that moment changed my life. I suddenly realized that I could belong here, that I had a place here. Stephen Carter is now a professor of law at Yale University, and he writes in his autobiography the name of this lady, she was an Orthodox Jewish lady, was Sarah Kestenbaum. He said, it was no accident that she was Jewish because Jews have a word for this kind of thing. They call it chesed, which means kindness, especially to strangers, especially when it's hard. I once told that story in the young Israel in Georgetown in Washington, not knowing that Sarah Kestenbaum had been a member of that shul, and the members of the shul said to me, we didn't know that story, but yes, that's the kind of thing Sarah Kestenbaum did. That comes from Yetziad Mitzrayim. That comes from you shall love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Wherever human beings fight for freedom, whenever they fight for education, whenever they fight for welcoming the stranger in our midst, they are reliving the story of Pesach.
It is the world's greatest story of hope. Why? Because Jews, having known slavery and exile, became the world's greatest religion of protest. Most religions in the world are religions of acceptance. Judaism is a religion of protest. We protest that the world that is is not yet the world that ought to be. And that is why you find so many Jews as lawyers fighting injustice, or economists and business people fighting poverty, or doctors fighting disease, or teachers fighting ignorance, or therapists fighting depression and despair. This passionate energy to make the world a little more free and a little less unjust is born every time we eat the bread of affliction and taste the marah of slavery. Every time we celebrate Pesach, we are recreating our identity as the people of hope and the people who fight for freedom. It is a remarkable thing that each year we don't merely tell the story, we reenact it. We clear our houses of comets as if we were preparing for a long journey. No other nation lives its story quite like that. David Ben-Gurion came to the United States in the 1940s and said to the American senators, he said, you, your ancestors came here 300 years ago to fight for freedom. But tell me, can you remember the day they set out and the food they ate on the way? Our ancestors set out on their journey for freedom 3,300 years ago, and we have never forgotten the day they set out and the food they ate on the way. Friends, may we all celebrate Pesach, Achag Hashem Sameach. May we really relive the story of our ancestors, and may we realize that we are the heirs to the greatest human story ever told. Thank you for being such a wonderful audience, and I wish you every success. Thank you.